Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm director of ECFR and I am joining you now for our last podcast before the British referendum on EU membership. We are merely hours away from polling day now and the campaign has entered its very final stretches and I'm very happy to be joined by somebody who's been studying the polls, how Britain thinks about a whole series of different issues and has been looking most uh, closely at the whole topic of immigration, which has been one of the central topics of the referendum campaign. His name is Sunda Katwala. He is director of the think tank and campaigning organisation British Future and has been doing a lot of uh, public opinion work on this topic for many years now. Sunda, how do you see the situation uh, a few hours before polling day? Well, it's a, it's a big moment in our history and in our democracy and the the power now shifts from the politicians and the campaigners who've had their say to the voters. Um, I think there's good news that we're expecting a high turnout in this referendum. A lot of people were worried that turnout would be about 50%. I think we'll see turnout as strong as a general election and we'll find out what the public's judgment is on this campaign. I think both sides um, probably do expect to get at least 45% of the vote and you wouldn't bet everything you had in life on which side will actually cross the winning line. I think there is a sense that a Remain victory is slightly more likely than a Leave victory and people had the opposite sense perhaps a week ago. And so I I still think, you know, there's there's a considerable chance that it will be close. It probably will be within a 10-point margin and that, you know, either side could yet emerge triumphant on the night. So can you talk through what you think has been happening? Because we had this sort of strange situation where for weeks and weeks, all sorts of different things happened. President Obama came out, the IMF came out, the World Trade Organization came out, the governor of the Bank of England came out, and the polls remained pretty stuck. They were uh, almost exactly neck and neck. Then there was a, a, a surge for the Leave campaign, which many people linked to the immigration figures uh, being released. And then now there seems to be um, a, a reversion to the status quo. It's not uh, clear exactly what was causing that. Some people think it's a, a natural reversion. Some people link it to the murder of, uh, of Joe Cox. Um, what's your take on uh, all of these big topics and the, and the kind of swings that we've seen over the last few weeks? I think you're right, Mark, to say there's been a remarkable volatility in the mood within Westminster and politics and the media, and sometimes a remarkable volatility in the markets. And that hasn't really been reflected in much change among the general population, where all the way along both of these campaigns have had their core vote. I think the reason that the polls were fluctuating quite a lot until the very end was a lot of people were waiting for the last 10 days to actually pay attention to this very important decision. Um, I, I think I think Leave did have a lot of momentum in the campaign, but they gained momentum after losing momentum first. I think the sense was that the economic argument didn't go so well to them. So Leave ended up on immigration, 
um, the people running the Leave campaign never quite intended to do that. Everyone else always expected the case for Leave to be about immigration. And that resonated, I think, the, the case for controlled immigration. And it resonated particularly when the argument was made for an Australian point system that, that there's a case for controlled immigration, but that there'd be immigration as well. That moderate case for controlled immigration is broadly where the British public are in a world where the European Union doesn't exist. They would they would have a similar policy from outside the European Union and from inside it. What the Remain campaign has therefore had to say is obviously the European Union does exist and you could make that choice about immigration, but the single market and the membership of the European Union is on the other side of the ledger. And so the campaigns have talked past each other about those two issues. I think the Leave campaign has never answered the questions about what it would mean to get out and how we could get out safely on the economy. And the Remain campaign kept changing the subject away from immigration. I think that frustrates people because it means that if they accept free movement as a price worth paying, actually they're worried that their concerns won't be dealt with about high immigration if we stay in. So I think this very volatile mood, I think this sense that both sides have always expected to sort of lose this referendum in a funny way. They've both been quite scared of the public and of speaking beyond the group that already that already um, supports them. And so, um, you know, it, it, it's going down to the wire. Let's... let's talk about i mean joe cox is a big uh uh question we're all still in shock but you and i both uh knew joe cox and um like uh, a lot of the political class here have been incredibly shaken by what happened uh, by these horrific events um so it would be good to talk more about that but maybe before we get on to joe cox you could tell us a bit more about the british attitudes towards immigration because i think one of the things which is puzzling to to non-british people is why immigration is such a central issue and why it has been one of the dominant issues around which this campaign has been fought well since we're we're talking about joe and the murder of joe let's talk about that first and and then then answer your other question you know uh, i knew her um so i think you you may have done a bit mark and worked very closely with her husband and it's a terrible event uh, you know, in our politics, especially as, you know, there's a trial now on, but we, we you know, there's enough there to realise that this was, uh, you know, a hateful, motivated killing by, by a man with, you know, fascist views, I think. So a woman killed for what she believes in and for work she's done. That, that's, you know, that's, that's deeply shocking in the way that people have responded to that has been has been very moving. And there'll be events um, um, on Wednesday um, in London and around the world to, to mark that. And that and that made everyone pause. And it reminds us that, you know, there are things, you know, we're having a disagreement and a debate about this referendum, whether we want to be in Europe or not. But there are bigger things in our society than that. Other people have asked the question since then, you know, will that be will that be the decisive event in the referendum? I really don't think so. I mean, it, you know, everyone stopped because it's right to stop. Uh, and uh, everyone calmed down. And maybe a calmer four or five days of a referendum that might give the public the debate that they wanted, but there was already going to be, and there was in polling that was being conducted, there was already a swing back um, to the main because the sense of wanting to leave the European Union is a very tempting thing for people when they think, especially with their hearts, but then the question of whether you wanted to do that or not is something you have to think about. So I think the entire country, Remain voters and Leave voters, you know, shocked and troubled by what happened. And then in the last 24 hours, the last 48 hours, they'll be going back to the questions that people on both sides are asking. Um, what does this really mean for me? How does it affect the economy? How does it affect immigration? And above all, the question that will decide this referendum is who can work out the answer, which choice is better 
for the next generation. That's what the referendum will be decided on. And I think there's a danger that we'll end up with a sort of mythology that, that it was decided by these shocking and terrible events. So, you know, I just think a bigger reason than a vote on this, on this scale. Um, but you want to know about British attitudes toward immigration. They're not that different, Mark, I think, to attitudes around Europe. I just think the way we engage with Europe in the immigration debate is perhaps different. Is, is that your experience? Well, I think that uh, every country uh, has got its own uh, peculiar history of emigration, of immigration, but the public debates in most other member states at the moment are, are around the refugee crisis, whereas the debates in the UK have been much more about intra-EU migration and the free mo- and freedom of movement. And um, I, you've been thought, thinking about this probably more than uh, almost anybody, uh, Sunda. So it'd be great if you could maybe explain to, to non-British listeners um, exactly what, what's going on, why it's so important, how it works, um, how much of this is about sort of racism and intolerance, how much of it is about pressure on public services or other questions? I think, I think we have quite similar debates about immigration in Britain and around the rest of Europe, but I think we have a different debate about Europe in Britain than to the rest of the European Union, and that therefore changes the way we debate free movement and European immigration. It's certainly the case in Britain that EU free movement, mobile EU citizens. It's certainly the case that that is immigration. I mean, I've heard in this debate people in Poland and Hungary sometimes say, well, we know what you mean about the migrants. Uh, You know, you're quite right about that, but we're very pained that you think in our country we are the migrants in your country. Um, And it's simply the case that, you know, EU migration to Britain is immigration uh, to the British public. It's people coming from another country. If you want to say, well, we should explain to them, really, you're European citizens, therefore it's not immigration, that doesn't make sense to the British public. We think in terms of national citizenship, even though, of course, we have there is EU citizenship as a matter of law. Britain has also got a different debate in a way simply because the scale of immigration to Britain, economic immigration to Britain, is higher than it's ever been. Um, it's higher than it's ever been in the last 10 years because of the scale of accession immigration. It's also, which is important, more distributed around the country than ever before. Most of our waves of immigration to Britain, if it was the Irish, if it was the West Indies, if it was Jewish immigration, if it was Indian immigration, it became mostly and spread out more slowly. Um, Polish and East European migrants went, went everywhere in Britain. They did go to London in large numbers, but they also went to Lincolnshire and Merthyr Tidville. Migrants haven't done that before. So we saw places experiencing their first experience of migration. And also, which I think people perhaps struggle to deal with, migration in this era is more temporary than it was in previous eras. And we still know how to deal with come with your suitcase migration, the Ellis Island model, the United States, the Windrush model to Britain. You might imagine you'll go back, but it's a long way. You've come with your suitcase, you've come for life, and your kids will be British. And actually, the migration to Victoria Coach Station now from across Europe is much more transient than that. It's often more temporary, and we're not quite sure how that works because we still like citizenship migration. So for these reasons, the debate is different, but really it's because the overall Europe debate is different. Every country, I think, in Europe has Euroscepticism about more integration and whether you get out what you put in and whether the European Commission does a good job on growth and immigration. But no other country in Europe asks the question, are we, are we in or not? And so I think, I think a lot of this goes back to Britain being an island. That is why we're not in Schengen. Obviously, we're an island and that has protection in terms of your uh, being an island and having borders. And also an island needs to engage with the world. So that, that, that is the different question about 
Europe. We still think about Europe mainly as over there rather than us. And we have joined uh, a political project primarily for economic reasons rather than for reasons of politics and identity. And that's why we think about the immigration debate as, you know, is it a price worth paying for the membership of this club rather than does it give us a new European identity, which I think British people have never wanted from the European project. I think one of the confusing things about the immigration debate, though, is that, you know, there's obviously been a huge economic benefit to the UK from freedom of movement. There's lots of studies, academic studies, which have been done, which shows that immigrants pay more in taxes than they get in benefits. Um, And culturally, uh, people coming from the European Union are... Uh, pose less questions around sort of integration than maybe some of the the refugees coming from uh, countries with uh, different religious and other kinds of backgrounds. Um, So maybe you can sort of explain um, why you think uh, uh, the UK is particularly troubled in spite of of those things. Well, the the scale scale is enormously high. And um, you know, it, it's the highest wave of migration, the of migration. It's then, it's then combined with, um, as, as migration from Poland has, has levelled off rather, it's been combined with a, a large amount of new migration um, from the old EU, from France, from Spain, from Italy, because of the relatively strong economic performance of Britain. And so Britain is attracting migrants because its economy is strong. But most people in Britain, as across Europe, you know, aren't feeling particularly um, strongly connected to economic growth. You know, it's, it's, these are still anxious economic times out there. The reason the argument that says there's a net economic contribution, so you're wrong to worry, doesn't work for people. And, you know, our research has proved that doesn't work for people. It's because it's missing, it's missing the point about what people care about. That says there's an aggregate net economic contribution, but people wanted to know other things as well to know whether the people were coming in had the right intention to come and work and pay taxes or are seeking to you know play the benefit system and and, you know if it's european migrants from eastern europe they have an ethos of being hardworking. there's a positive stereotype of them as hardworking. yet david cameron's change and his reforms that make the system more contributory and mean you have to pay in before you can pay out they speak to the public uh desire to see contribution reflected and a contributory system. What they won't do is cut the numbers because people have come to work. So if they've been sold for the right reason, they would have been a good idea. But the other point about the gains of migration, there are gains of migration and there are pressures. And governments, the Labour government, did not anticipate the scale of migration we get, got. And David Cameron's government promised to cut the numbers and then failed to cut the numbers. So this migration was not predicted was not prepared for, and people don't feel that the local impacts have been dealt with. So the net contribution is an important fact if people had confidence that the money isn't stuck in the Treasury coffers in London, but is being spent on the GP surgeries and on the school gate in the areas they live that have had fast population change. They don't have that confidence, partly no doubt, because the net economic contribution has gone to pay off the deficit in times of austerity. So if Advocates of the movement were doing more to say we'll handle it better, and that would be important. So one of the questions, though, which people kind of wonder is how much of the anti-immigration sentiment is about this sort of socioeconomic reasons, which you just described, for which there can be uh, ways of mitigating it. For example, if you track 
the numbers of people coming in, if you make sure local authorities get extra money to create school places, if you make sure that hospitals are properly financed and, and they're not buckling under austerity, versus uh, prejudice and uh, hatred of foreigners. I mean, certainly some of the uh, posters which have characterised this campaign most notably the the famous UKIP poster, which was unveiled by Nigel Farage um, last uh, Thursday, um, uh, the day that, that Joe Cox uh, was murdered, uh, which had a picture of, of Syrian, uh, largely Syrian refugees on the Slovene border with the phrase breaking point with echoes of, of the 1930s. That didn't seem to be just about numbers and, and pressure on school places and hospitals. It seems to be trying to tap into some other deeper, maybe uh, less tolerant uh, aspect of the British psyche. There's, there's, there's a racist and prejudiced minority in Britain. Uh, there is in every European society as well. There's less racism and prejudice in Britain than there was 20 years, 30 years or 40 years ago because there's been a generational shift against that because people are used to diversity they grew up with because more people are educated. So um, people are people are misremembering sometimes when they say the debate today is more toxic than ever. They need to go back and read speeches even from 20 years ago. You don't have to go back to Enoch Powell. So Nigel Farage has made a mistake with that poster and people on his own side know that. And, we, you know, we know actually, um, because research was done at the weekend, we, we know that 28% of people thought that that was a fair poster. And that um, I think 43% thought it was inflammatory and other people somewhere in between the two. And, you know, a poster that appeals to 28% of people by stirring up the immigration debate, making it about refugees, making it about cultural identity. If he'd released that in the general election, it would have been a, a sensible way for him to try and make sure you could get 15%. Because being accused of being prejudiced by doing something that speaks to that very, you know, left behind group, you know, is, is good for UKIP. You can't believe because you need 50% in this referendum. And actually, we've since heard Boris Johnson saying he's still in favour of an amnesty for illegal immigrants. We've had Michael Gove trying to use a very soft and very inclusive language about Britain as a safe haven. Because the outside of this referendum campaign know that actually, if you're looking for 50%, 70% of people in Britain think that we should welcome refugees to our country. Actually, the vast majority of people think that migrants who come and play by the rules and integrate should be welcome in our society. So immigration is difficult for the inside because they have to explain that food means you can't control the numbers who come to work from Europe. It's difficult from the outside when people cross the line on language. So we do have a problem with racism and prejudice at the fringes of our society as fuel populism. I mean, but, you know, let's make one point in favour of Nigel Farage having been critical of him. In European terms, he's a somewhat moderate populist because he says very tough things about Muslims and Muslim integration, but he says less tough things in Britain than people would say in, I think, Denmark or the Netherlands about Muslims because he's in Britain and actually we've got very strong anti-prejudice and anti-racism norms in our politics and in our society. So what both sides are struggling to do here is to get the balance right between saying immigration is a really big issue in a referendum about the rules of being in Europe and people want the debate properly, but they want to keep it within the boundaries because one side, the inside actually, has said we want to change the subject most of the time because that is their strategy. They haven't really offered plans to deal with the pressures. And the other side has advocates who have a moderate voice and they have advocates who polarise the debate. But when they polarise the debate, I think they're losing votes for their side. I don't think they're winning it. So let's change the topic then. That's a good cue to uh, talk about the other topic, because, you know, the, the, 
the uh, theory of pollsters behind this campaign is that every day spent talking about immigration is a day that's going to help the leave side, whereas the remain side wants to talk about the economy and the economic risks. How do you see that debate uh, playing out? Well, you know, that is what both campaigns are trying to do, but that is where conventional campaign theory, which is no doubt rational in the short term because you feel the voters are put off by this argy-bargy of statistics and facts, but you want to make sure you're on your key message when they when they do lend half an ear. Both sides are actually making the voters decide without answering the question about which they have doubts. They only want to talk about the point that they've already landed. The inside has landed the point, I think, very successfully, that leaving means a short-term economic risk to Britain's economy because there's uncertainty. If something big happens, it's less clear to people who's won the argument about the long-term pros and cons of being in a, in a Europe that, you know, has less of an association with economic success in this era of the Eurozone and the Greek crisis than it clearly had for Britain in the 1990s and 1980s and the 1970s. And the Leave side, similarly, going back to immigration and now quite troubled, actually, about getting its tone right and getting its voice right, have ducked the question, what would it mean if we left? What would happen? How do we know we can exit safely? And if they if they do fall short of the winning post, actually, um, on Thursday night, I think it will be because they had you know, powerful arguments that worked in debates, perhaps often better than the Remain arguments, but they didn't really offer people the reassurance that you could get out safely. And I think it might be quite difficult maybe for Remain to get not to, to leave to get not to 45 or 47%, but across the 50% boundary without having some people a clearer idea about the plan for the day after. So on the economic front, the two interesting things that have happened. One is that the, the leave side have tried to use the... Uh, British broadcasting laws and their idea of impartiality to to put up people uh, um, uh, who claim that uh, Britain will be economically better off um, if it leaves in the same way that climate change protesters uh, try and buck the expert uh, consensus. Um, so even though nine out of 10 economists, apparently, according to the polls, uh, think it will be bad for Britain to leave, they always have one up against the, um, the, the, the Remain campaign's economists um, in order to, to then pivot back to the, 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 the migration story. But on the other side, how good a job do you think the um, uh, Remain side have done of making the economic risks come to life for ordinary people because you talked a bit about how uh, migration might benefit the economy as a whole but it it could still uh, create problems for people in their everyday lives what about the um uh, the, the economic counterpart to that um how much uh, do you think the remain side have done to to make people feel that their personal financial circumstances would be at risk I think I think they've obviously been trying harder and harder than that, and that has been the struggle for them. And in in the end, I think they've, you know, even in these last days, they're still trying to make the case for people where they've probably said, look, I understand all the uncertainty. I understand it might be bad for Britain's economy. I'm not sure how it affects my economy. I'm not sure how it affects the household. They've been trying to personalise the argument at that level. And I think they probably have landed that argument well with the voters who chose David Cameron a year ago to be Prime Minister on um, leadership, on competence, not chaos, on there being an economic plan. I think 
if that's the thought process you went through in the days running up to the general election and you plumped for David Cameron even if you didn't approve of his government, I think you're probably going to lean Remain, even though you might like Boris Johnson and Michael Grove as well. The Remain side's problem as well is they need the voters who didn't vote for David Cameron last May, who would have chucked him out for Ed Miliband, even with the SNP, you know, in the background somewhere, because because the economy isn't working for them. And so getting the Labour non-graduate vote to endorse the status quo is a very big challenge. They They might have more to lose, but they don't feel they've got much to lose. And, you know, for that audience saying you've got to put up with food movement even if you don't like it because you know the single market if that's coming seems to be coming from big business from the city of london then people are very much thinking well i can see it does work for people like you but i don't feel at all connected to this issue of the economic benefits of europe um, that feels a long way away westminster's a long way away brussels is even further away so i think there's been a real struggle to localize and personalize the impact for voters on the left of centre, although it's probably worked quite well for moderate voters on the right of centre. So as we enter the, the, the final stage, one of the big questions is is um, how much effect the murder of Joe Cox is going to have on the way that people think about things. It's obviously utterly heartbreaking to see somebody who was so full of life and energy who fought in such a vigorous way for so many uh, of the the most inspiring causes in the world who was uh, working, doing a democratic duty on the day that she was killed and who leaves behind um, young children and a husband uh, and has robbed from us at such a a young age. So everyone is in a state of shock. But to to what extent do you think... um, her death is going to affect both sides of the campaign uh, and the tone of the the last uh, few hours of of campaigning. I think it's affected the tone of British politics and the mood in British society these last few days. We had tributes in the House of Commons from all sides um, yesterday. She was a passionate campaigner for the European Union. She was with her children and her husband uh, in a boat, you know, with a flag on it being, uh, you know, taking on Nigel Farage's flotilla, which everybody, you know, enjoyed as a great moment of pantomime on, on, on Wednesday. And then and you have the tragedy on Thursday. So she, she was passionate about this and everybody will respect that. But I am very sceptical of the idea that this tragic event will affect the outcome of the referendum rather than affecting the tone of the last week. I think if you are a very strong partisan of the Remain cause, then you will think what you thought about that poster as well and what you thought all the way through the campaign. Maybe you didn't want to have this referendum at all. You'll say, we see in the evil fascist murder of of a woman for her political beliefs, we see the dangers of having referendums and democratic votes on, on the issue of the European Union or populism more generally. And you know, but I don't I don't think most people would make that link in that way. I think I think most people would say that the sort of evil um, of the violent street groups we see and the arguments we might have about, you know, politicians getting the tone on immigration, the slightly different critiques. And I, I think I think people on the leave side and people on the remain side of this referendum will have been equally shaken by by those events, but that what people will do on Thursday is they will go to their ballot box and think very, very carefully about a really difficult issue. 
is it in our interests or is it not in our interests now as Britain to be in the European Union as a vehicle to promote our values and interests in the future or might we have a better view outside of it? And the, and the, the change in tone, I think, might give us a more respectable debate, uh, you know, on the Wembley staging debate the BBC are having that people will be paying a lot of attention to tonight, but I don't think it will fundamentally change the votes that people cast, and I think that's quite healthy and valuable for our democracy. What we should do about the tragic events around Jo Cox, as the hashtag more than common is being used by her friends to advocate her legacy, is to remember that 10, 12, 15 million people of our fellow citizens will vote on both sides of this referendum we've made a different judgment about a massive issue of the national interest and we'll still be citizens of the same country um, the day after and we'll be working together to deliver the outcome of Britain still in the European Union or Britain preparing a path out of it if that's what people have chosen. So we're coming towards the end of our time and you have yet to tell us what, which is it going to be. Is it going to be a leave vote or a remain vote and what's the result ultimately going to be? I think I think the, the most the most likely outcome is, is is probably a remain a remain victory by by say six points or so fifty three forty seven something like that. There is a chance of a leave victory, and it might be a bit higher, I think, than the markets are saying. And there's a certain paradox, I think, about the last week. We thought leave had gone ahead and would now be facing the pressure of being ahead in the last 48 hours, people going to the ballot box thinking that the country was perhaps more likely than not to vote leave. Probably a lot of market pressure uh, and economic turbulence about that. And that would have put the sort of project fear, is it made up, uh, are there real risks, into focus and made it rather hard for the change side to win. Actually, you're going into the, the, the ballot box with a sense that it's neck and neck, but people's expectation is that maybe Remain has won. You've got actually rather benign markets because they've been very choppy. So Leave isn't facing that pressure on the last day. They could still win. I think high turnout, everybody said, was good for Remain. And certainly Remain was very worried about getting high turnout. I'm, I'm very confident we have got high turnout, and I think that's good for democracy. But high turnout means more young voters who are Remain voting. It also means more working class and DE voters who might have given up on general elections voting. So I think both sides have always had hard to mobilise voters. So I think I think it's more likely than not that Britain will wake up still in the European Union on Friday, but don't rule out the chances of a shock result still at the last. We'll know very soon whether you're right or whether you're wrong. There's one final thing um, which we tend to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Sunda, if you look at your bookshelf at the moment, what's the, the best thing that you've read on uh, on the British-European debate? I'm not sure. I mean, I get a chance to plug, which is rather rude, the British Future Report, how not to talk about Europe, which, unless there's a replay, has now run out of its, uh, run out of, run out of time. I, I hope we'll get new writing about this uh, about this referendum, about identity and what it what it all means. I mean I was I was a great fan of the work of Hugo Young um, a generation ago. He wrote this magisterial history of Britain in Europe, this blessed plot, which is about how the British had, you know, never quite reconciled their history with their future and he makes a passionate pro European case. And I was I was very influenced uh, by that myself and I think you know it's, it's a very good read on the long history but I think this referendum has changed the debate because for 50 years British pro-Europeans said because we didn't join at the start the answer now is to be fully committed what this referendum is about actually it's about 
halfway in and halfway out, semi-detached Britain being the version of in we can have because we live in a new Europe of the Eurozone. So I think we'll need new books, actually, about the identity of Britain in Europe, uh, still there at the table, maybe, if the result goes that way, but probably staying as a somewhat semi-detached partner and hopefully new projects, Mark, from you and the European Council about what people who aren't in the Eurozone can do to be fully engaged with other aspects of the European project. Okay, thank you. So I'm going to slightly cheat on this. I'm not going to recommend a book, but I am going to recommend uh, a website which um, uh, lots of people are visiting in the wake of of Joe Cox's tragic murder, which is uh, a website set up by her friends and family to uh, raise money in her uh, in her memory, it's already raised over a million pounds um, in the first few days since it was uh, launched. And I'll put a link on that uh, to our website. It's on the the GoFundMe uh, website, and uh, it's a very moving page. You can see a beautiful picture of of Joe there, as well as lots of comments from uh, her friends and from people who've never met her but who were touched by her memory. So we'll put links to all these publications on our website. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do rate us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Mixcloud. Please tweet about it, post on our Facebook page or on your own and uh, encourage other people to to come to us. Please spread the word. Uh, But for now, from uh, Sundar Katwala and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrika Franke and our editor is Katarina Botel-Azzinaro. Mm-hmm.